I started work the day after Labor Day, 1987. And a month later, I was had the front row seat to the 1987 crash. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredients. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time I spent wrestling, if it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. It's your host, Ryan Warner, coming to you Wednesday, January 17th from the Wendy Chicago IL, birthplace of the baby back ribs. Our guest today is a Wall Street legend, Rich Tavoso. For 20 years, he was the managing director at RBC Capital Markets, head of the Global Arbitrage and Trading Division. Prior to that, he spent seven years at Kidder Peabody, where he built and managed their Tokyo Equity Derivatives Group. He holds a degree in history from Princeton, a former Princeton wrestler. Really hope you enjoy this podcast. A lot of career development in this one, folks. Enjoy. Fan of the week goes to Shannon Scoville. That's at Shannon Scoville on Twitter. Teacher at UT Knoxville, reporter for NCAA Wrestling. Big fan of this show, and we greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much, Shannon. And without further ado, folks, let's give it up for the great Rich Tavoso. Rich Tavoso, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Ryan. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I'm excited. So, lots to talk about. I mean, when I think of you, I think of team leader for USA Wrestling these past two years of men's freestyle. I think of Princeton. We got some coaching changes. And we're excited to talk about that, but let's just start with kind of your background and, and your, your introduction into the sport. So I grew up, uh, grew up down in South Jersey in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia. So lifelong Philadelphia sports fan. Um, you know, my brother had done some wrestling, but never stuck with it really. And I just, cause he was doing that like in fifth or sixth grade. I did a couple summer programs back then, you know, people didn't start back in second grade or, at least very few people did. And I had done it for a couple summer things, and then really started wrestling in junior high in seventh grade. Um, and was down in New Jersey through my freshman year of high school and wrestling down there at Cherry Hill East. And then I moved to Virginia, where I really blossomed as a wrestler and really started getting more involved into it uh, and sort of went from on that trajectory. Now, were your parents athletes? Um, not especially. You know, there was huge supporters of anything we were doing and came to watch everything we were doing, but not, it was never a, a big thing in their lives. But I think back in those days, if you look back then, you know, it was much more of a, youth sports wasn't as intense as it was today. Um, you were involved in things. You played a lot more in your neighborhood. You had your little league, you had your pop Warner football, uh, but you didn't have as much, um, Parents came to watch and parents that had played sports were involved in coaching. Uh, my dad never, they were always there, but they, they didn't really do any coaching or anything. And, and what did your folks do? Just out of curiosity, what was like the, the home life like? Um, you know, my mom was a social worker uh, for a bunch of different school districts. I used to remember I used to like three different school districts. So when I used to, to write on my uh, things with what my mom did, it was always a pain in the butt because I had like to write, you know, write a bunch of different lines. Remember where, follow the script to where she worked. And my dad was an engineer, electrical engineer at DuPont. So, you know, it worked out well. My, you know, my dad was worked a basically an eight hour a day job with home every night. Um, didn't go out a lot. And my mom was in the school hours type thing. So, we, you know, it, it was a good situation um, back then. 
I'm just curious if you had it, uh, any inkling at, at that age that you'd go on to Wall Street or that'll come later. Um, that really, I would have had no inkling that Wall Street really even existed back in, you know, when I was high school. I mean, my dad always had an interest in the stock market and, like, you know, owned a couple stocks. He just bought Apple instead of IBM. He'd have a lot more money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, he, you know, so he was always, there was a stocks existed to me and Wall Street existed, but I don't think really at that age, you know, Wall Street was, wasn't what it was today. You know, remember, there was no internet back then. There was no here. I remember I picked up my first Barron's probably when I was like in a barber shop. I saw it when I was basically, you know, six, probably sixth or seventh grade um, and used to look at that, but never understand any of it. <laughs> and not really. So I got to college and people, you started seeing people go into Wall Street. Uh, and making good money to really start piquing my interest. Yeah, and we'll get to that because Princeton during that time, you know, during the 80s, I'm sure there was a lot of folks going uh, going right to Wall Street. But let's go back to Virginia. So you moved to Virginia. You said that was a big point in your wrestling career. What happened there that was such a big impact on you? You know, Cherry Hill, New Jersey was great. Um, but the school I went to was a 4,000-person high school. And so we had we actually had – and we had a freshman wrestling team. We had 40 kids on it. It's just amazing wow. how big just a freshman were, right? team. Our freshman team had 40 kids on it. Uh, still still friends with a few of them. And one buddy was a Jersey State champ uh, by his senior year. Um, and we were really we were really good on that team, you know. But I was one of six kids who was, you know, had one loss in the season, maybe one or two kids undefeated. And so I was good but wasn't necessarily standing above the pack and everyone. We had a bunch of guys that were really good. Yeah. And I moved down to Virginia, obviously a different level of wrestling in Virginia versus New Jersey. And I moved down there my sophomore, after my freshman year of high school. And, and I'd lived the same place for 15 years in my life. And I had never moved before. Um, moving's not easy at that age. So this is your first time. And Northern Virginia, Winchester, Virginia, which, Ended up being a great move for me was going from a thousand people per class to a thousand person high school. Wow. And being that you're a smaller high school, you invest more in the kids. Like Cherry Hill could afford to have whoever didn't turn out, whoever wasn't great or superstar as a freshman, they could sort of ignore because there were just so many athletes there and just they weren't gonna, they weren't really very focused on developing. They were focused on winning right away. And if they weren't winning right away, that didn't really pay much attention to you. Um, now, I had a great freshman coach, so I got lots of attention, but I moved to Virginia and, you know, I wasn't, as I say, was uh, going down there as a guy, a kid moving down to, a, it might have been Northern Virginia, but, you know, Winchester, Virginia is like the, uh, it was the home of Stonewall Jackson during his Valley campaign, just taken and retaken 72 times during the Civil War. And it might be Northern Virginia, but it is the South. Yeah. Um, and so, it, you know, there's a strong pride in it. Uh, it's a great place to move to. And I, like I always say, was uh, I wasn't and so started out playing football. I was never a great football player. And I got a lot more popular when uh, when when wrestling season started. Um, you know, I went down there, had been wrestling, and started wrestling there. And, you know, I knew I was good. I'd done I just 22 and 1 as a, on a freshman team and was in New Jersey. Uh, and just started wrestling down there. And quickly became on that team, becoming one of the leaders of the team. And, you know, like any high school thing, if you're all of a sudden a good athlete and doing well or something, you start meeting a lot more people. People are friendlier. So um, mm -hmm. a great introduction for me um, is, as far as going to Virginia was, I always say it was one of my most important steps because they invested in you more as a person. Uh, Cherry Halise might have had much more advanced classes, much more advanced everything. And pushing it harder ahead, while John Hanley High School in Winchester, Virginia, it wasn't the same academically or thing, but people there did just as well in college. People there became, you know, those aren't all about taking these advanced courses. It's about developing the whole person. It was uh, more focused on just as more of a community. Yeah. Uh, more community-focused kind of education as well. And were you always like a like a confident person would you say you were like outgoing at that age or was it was it kind of pull, wrestling kind of pulling that out of you um i was definitely not as um outgoing as i currently am but i did i just recently went back to my 40th high school reunion i 
looked at my yearbook and I was most talkative in my senior class. So I must have been relatively outgoing. <laughs> um, and so I always a pretty, I gained a lot of confidence being there. Like all of a sudden I'm on the team. I'm a sophomore in wrestling. I'm beating a lot of good kids. I'm doing really well. And you just become more confident. Um, developed there as a, as a, so I was a double, that's back when Virginia only had three classes before they did this ridiculous six classes of oh, wrestling. So, and so it's been, uh, I was double A in the middle, triple A, double A, then single A. And, you know, I've won states as a junior. Uh, somehow I lost as a senior, which is a real bummer. Um, and so the, uh, you know, it's one of those things that losses always drive you. Yeah. But it was a. In the finals your senior came, year, what happened? Uh, you know, so I would, I had, I had a great senior year and hadn't had a match closer than 12 points all year. And I wrestled a guy in my, and there was a guy who was a phenomenal athlete, actually a very good wrestler in my region. And I was losing, I fell behind him in the regional finals and somehow scored four points in the, in this, that was when overtimes went longer in the final 20 seconds to win the match and win the regions in the biggest match of the regionals. But somewhere in that, I lost my confidence going into my state tournament from having such a close match. And, you know, then went in the States and I lost in the quarterfinals and ended up taking third place. But um, to that guy or a different guy to that, that guy actually didn't even place the States. He actually got sick. And it was a weird time in our regional. We had 40 inches of snow that week. We wrestled on Monday, Tuesday, and then went down to the States on a Friday. It was a weird time and a weird thing happened. And, um, you know, you always look back. I always think I should have won stage by, by senior year, but my junior year I was losing and hit had a headlock in the third period to win. So maybe I shouldn't really have won my junior year. Wow. But it's a lot more important to win my junior year because that's what got me recruited to Princeton. So it all worked out. It's all fine. Yeah. I'd love to have this love to have a match or two back like everybody else would. I don't think there's any wrestler around that, that doesn't want to have a match or two back in their life. Absolutely not. We can all think of them. So Tell me, so you went state as a junior, you're going into your senior season. Do you think you're going to wrestle in college at this point? Yeah, it's really, it's only one, that was probably the first time. It's really hard for people to go back to that days, right? You didn't know yeah. anybody, right? There was not this following what it is or how you, how, how you could follow things. Coaches did not, you know, Princeton at that point, we had two coaches and our one coach, our head coach, Johnny Johnson was in charge of all the um, logistics for the whole athletic department. Our assistant coach was in charge of Dillon Gymnasium uh, and the and the murals. And so these guys were all part-time coaches, right? It was not, there was no practice. Well, there wasn't a whole lot of, at least among the ideas, there was not a lot of practice out of season back then or anything. Um, and so after my junior year, I'm like, oh, I'm thinking about wrestling in college. Um, you know, so I started thinking about it. Um, but for me, when I was in high school, I, I was going to go to UVA. I mean, for me, I was living in Virginia. I was a very good student. Um, getting into UVA, is a, and UVA was a really fun school. Mm. And so, you know, I always, it's a, it's a, for me, it was always like, okay, I knew I'd get into UVA anyway. I didn't need wrestling to get in. I was just, just where, if you look at where everyone was, um, and hadn't really thought about Princeton, right, really at all. And so my brother, for some reason, really loved the idea of me going to Princeton. He convinced me. Uh, he convinced me to apply to Princeton. I literally wrote my essays for Princeton on the app in freehand the day they were due, um, <laughs> and like no one from my high school had ever gotten into Princeton before. And really, I probably wouldn't have got in, but they had this thing called the alumni interview. So I, at one stage as a junior, I have I have high SAT scores, I have good grades. My I go to my alumni interview for. Um, I go to my I go to my alumni interview and the guy's alumni interview interviews me. I'm a state champ with these good grades, high SAT scores. And the first thing he said to me, I'm like, ah, how much fun can Princeton be? And how much, you know, UVA is probably more fun. It probably wasn't the best interviewer back then. I was, was really no training back then. No one's making you think about these things. And his line to me was, if I didn't have a lot of fun at Princeton, I wouldn't be interviewing for it right now. And I wouldn't be talking to people. So he finished that interview. He got on the phone. He called the wrestling coaches at Princeton. He said, hey, I just interviewed a kid who's a state champ, who has high SAT scores, high GPA. No one from this school has ever gotten into Princeton before. 
He's not getting in without you supporting him. But you know, if you have a recruiting list, he's probably a good person you talk to. And next thing you know, he had a coach from Chet Dow. I got a call from Chet Dalwitz and started talking to him. So that started my journey towards Princeton. Wow. That's interesting because you know, UVA, I was just in Charlottesville last week for work. What a beautiful place. I mean, and, and that was your you could have gone there, it would have been an easy transition. Then now you have, you know, an Ivy League school calling you. That's an interesting dichotomy. Right, right. So I always say, so one of the great stories I always tell people is like, where did you and Mike Novogast meet? We met on a recruiting trip at UVA. We were both recruits. To both UVA, though. We were both recruited by UVA. Uh, we were both down there. I remember staying in the rooms. I, I remember being there because we were seniors in high school, but Mike was the one with the fake ID that went out to buy the, buy the beer. Um, it was my introduction to Mike, and my introduction to Mike, which is pretty well held constant through life. Um, and he had a much more idea that he's from Northern Virginia, right outside DC, much more in the world of where you're looking at that. Mike was never really thinking he was going to UVA. He was always talking to some other schools and, and thinking and probably thinking more of it. For me, I was just going to UVA. Um, got into, all of a sudden I got into Princeton. I didn't even know I was going to get in. I had no idea. I was you know, shocked getting in. My one friend I was with in the car one time, Cherry Hill, Look, turned to me when I told him my credentials. He looked at me and goes, Richard, you're probably going to get into Princeton. I'm like, what? I had, I had no idea. I didn't understand athletic recruiting or anything, how that worked. Um, went up there, saw people on campus, had fun at Princeton too, and decided to go to Princeton. Um, wow. So, Did you, you stay know, friends with Novogratz after that recruiting trip or not until you reunited at Princeton? Don't talk to – don't see Mike again. Never – Never see him again. We go to my get to Princeton the very first day I'm there, in the at, at Wilson at Wilson College. We're doing the introductory thing. Someone comes up and grabs me from behind. It's Mike Novogratz, um, and we literally lived. I lived in a nine man suite at one end of the hall, and I didn't have any wrestlers. We had a few other athletes. They're still some of my best friends. Mike lived at the other end of the hall. And in a suite with eight people, and one of, one of the guys in his suite was a wrestler, was one of our teammates through college. Uh, so that's it. That's how much communication you had back then. Versus everybody walks into college these days, having been on teams before, having known the people. Um, you know, there's there's uh, there's good ways in both of it, but you have very vivid memories of meeting people when you met them for the first time. Well, like you said, you stayed friends with a lot of those people even to this day. What was your first semester like academically at Princeton? Well, let's see. I started out Princeton. I think I'd be a pre-med. Then I got an 11 on my second chemistry test. That was a, that was a, that, 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 that was an awakening. I was, uh, it was like freshman chemistry. I'm like, this is hard. I remember I was walking up with my, one of my, one of the guys on the wrestling team afterwards and the average score is a 52. So my 11 is not quite as bad as it sounds. Yeah, and there was like one one hundred and one ninety eight, and the whole class and the, and the teacher went through it why it wasn't that hard and people could get it. And I turned to another guy we were wrestling with who was not a recruited wrestler, was still good friends to this day. And I'm like, Karch, what did you get in that test? He's like, I did pretty well. I'm like, Karch, what did you get in the test? He goes, I did well. I'm like, Karch, what the did you get in the test? He's like, I got the ninety eight. And so I'm like, okay, you're tutoring me now. <laughs> so, uh, so I managed to get through that with a B, but quickly moved on from um, wanting to be pre-med and switched over to thinking I was just going to start to see some of the older guys in the team go on and go forward and start people start working on Wall Street and the people on Wall Street made good money. Uh, I was pretty focused on, you know, I came from a good middle class background where, where we didn't want for anything, but we weren't wealthy by any means. We were straight middle class and I wanted to make money. Um, you know, it was a pretty simplistic goal I had. I wanted to go somewhere. Love to say I wanted to go help things, wanted to go do things. Uh, loved a lot of things about wrestling. Loved a lot of things about other stuff. But at that point, uh, that that was that was a big focus for me. Find some place where I could make some money. And I think a lot of us thought that we'd go to Wall Street, we'd make some money, we'd end up going back to coaching or going back to something else. But as I said, I got I got my first job, and I stopped about thirty seven years later. Wow, what was your first job? Um, so I came out, um, moved, uh, came, came out of Princeton, moved, uh, was, went out to visit a friend in Chicago. And that was back when the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and Chicago Board of Trade were 
big, all the trading happened there. And it was a, um, I was basically just staying with my friend for a week, sleeping on his floor. And he called me up and said, Hey, we, we need someone on the floor. Come down and interview with uh, Matt Sagri and come down here and interview. And went down there, met with someone for half an hour. I got a job as a temp on the floor, making 50 bucks a day, um, and started working. Went home, got my stuff, moved into their apartment on the floor. And, and just that was a great back then. Yeah, you know, it was a different time where the information and all these internships, all this stuff, none of that existed, right? So um, it just, you know, you, you weren't even aware of any of it did, right? And so the floors were a great place for kids to start out back, back then because your first job, what you talked about was you talked about going out drinking, sports, and girls. Yeah. It was basically the same thing you did. It was basically college repeat with a bunch of grown men who are now learning about the markets. And you just slowly learned about the market. You started reading the Wall Street Journal. It started, you know, in college, it's pretty hard for it to make sense to you. Um, it started making sense to you. You started to fo follow the markets and go through everything. Um, so my first year, I spent out in Chicago. So what are you actually right, right. doing, though? Are you like, uh, for, for us non-finance people? I'm literally getting calls from people and I'm going, you know, sell 200 at six and sending into the pit getting the fill, turning on the phone, turning the person on the phone. Okay. I'm literally just, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a clerk on the, I'm a clerk on the uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange floor. And I always say to people, I got it. I started work the day after Labor Day, 1987. And a month later, I was had the front row seat to the 1987 crash because I was working in the S&P futures pit. I was working in the Eurodollar pit, which is next to the S&P 500 futures pit. The day the market crashed in in, in October '87. And How does that compare to '08 or the dot com crash? Um, the severity of what the market went down in one day is, is never happened. Like when has never happened again. It was down twenty percent in that one day. '87. Right? In '87, like, we're down like twenty-two or twenty-three percent in that one day. Wow. And it was really when the futures pit, which is you know ironic, because that's where. Made my, made my name on Wall Street, was trading um, index arbitrage and trading S&P futures. And it was um, really, that was a pretty new thing in the world. And a lot of the selling in there with this portfolio insurance and things just accelerated. They didn't have curbs on the markets back then. They, you know, nowadays the market moves, I'm not sure if it's 5% or what percentages they put, a, they put an hour trading hall in a certain amount, they'll shut the market for the rest of the day. We have all these trading halts and all these things around to make sure a lot more information going around. Back then, it wasn't right. No one ever thought that could happen. So, I just remember the market. You know, I, I, and I didn't really have a concept of what it meant, right? I didn't have any money, right? So you didn't have any money in the market. My parents didn't have any real money in the market, so it didn't really mean what it meant to other people. I didn't realize what a momentous occasion it was, but wow. it was certainly interesting. Uh, yeah. It was, it was literally. Watching, you know, it was it was like a front row seat. They, you had these cards you put in, and you matched the cards to the sheet they stamped them on. And when you got, they just called me over the desk. They like start matching them, and nothing matched because nothing. Things were moving at a speed that no one ever thought they could move. So, by the other things that happened, I actually understood what was going on, and was part of it. Um, that was just, you know, I was just a, a bystander on a. I don't know, just watching something happen and watching the markets. Dang. That's, so, what a time to start. It was a, uh, it was, you know, the floors were great. They were just, you know, obviously they lasted for a really long time in Chicago. Um, the Chicago floors were, were it, was, it was a, like the kid or Peabody who I worked for back then and the guy who really got a bunch of us started the businesses. We, you know, even this whole alumni network, we're very focused on alumni network at Princeton and, Others, I think most other schools are as well, and trying to help their people get jobs. It didn't exist back then. I mean, it really wasn't the same information. But we did have one alum, Gary Sagley, who was a senior guy at Kidder Peabody. Like, I think one year they hired the left side of the Harvard offensive line to go work in the pits, right? They needed guys to stand in the pits that were smart, that could handle things. And he, he struck an idea I can hire, hire these young athletes from Ivy League schools that are smart on their feet and can do things and, and they're actually physical and handle it. And they start a lot of careers that way. Oh yeah. Um, so that was a lot. Yeah. So it was a lot of, um, it was, he actually got a bunch of us started from our program on wall street going that direction. 
it's it makes sense, right? Like the uh, the company I came up in, a bunch of EMC guys, they would take college athletes, put them through two months of training at Boston, and then send them out in the field. And like, if you made it six months later, you would get a you know a patch, your own your own book of business. But the uh, just the competitiveness of it really, I think, help people in sales. What do you think about like trading and financial markets? Same thing, competitiveness, work ethic, work ethic, wanting to win. You know, you look at what you're doing in a wrestling match, you know, you're physically against someone else, but you're also mentally, you're figuring out how to win. Mm-hmm. You don't get any, you, you don't get any credit for being the guy who is uh, the physically stronger person if you end up on the wrong end of the wrong end at the end of the match. And, you know, the markets are a lot like that. You know, you can do a lot of things right, but at the end of the day, you got to survive and you got to win. Um, and so it was a really, it was a great environment for a lot of people who were, and even if people weren't college athletes, they were at least at tend to be a lot of athletic people and a lot of people are used to you have to be used to competing yeah you have to be used to wanting to have a will to win in order to do that um so it was and for me first year i wasn't ready for like these like these got these young guys coming out of college now where they have all this information flow and they know they should be reading all these things i wasn't mature enough yet so it was a great first year place first couple of years i was only out in chicago for a year before being sent to new york but a great place to get a good a great training ground Love Chicago. Great city. It's a, it, it was a very fun first year in Chicago. My brother worked <laughs> at the board. My brother worked at the board of trade and he had a whole crew of people. He was friends with out there. So he's a bit older and it was just a fun time to be in that city. Good times. And so when would you say, and I want to go back to, to some of the Princeton wrestling, but when would you say from a professional standpoint, you decided that like finance was going to be a career for you and you started taking it really serious, like a wrestling season? Um, you know, I've still, you know, I always tell people I've been doing this a long time. And it took, there's never a point where I said, wow, this is going to be my career. There's just a point where I started to figure it out. If I take this more, more serious, I can do really well. Um, and I think that was probably about a year later in New York. I got moved to New York. I worked on the FX desk and then I was fortunate that, uh, my FX stuff shut down. And I moved over to a trading index arbitrage. And that was when I sort of started to see people being successful start to meet people you start to see people where they're out there in the markets and you're like oh if, if you know if, if we do well at this you know we can make really good money and and i always say that uh you know Nova, mike novogratz was one of the first people when he, he started a little bit later than us because he he worked he went to the uh, army for a year and mm-hmm. learned to fly helicopters first he got to desk working at goldman sachs and he was like two months in he's like you know the people that are ahead of me they're just not that smart and they're making a few hundred thousand dollars a year we don't make a lot of money in this business. We're just not doing the work. Uh, and we all realize it really. Okay, look, you're watching what's ahead of you. You're saying, I can do better. You can say, I can find ways to do this better and ways to, ways to be smarter about it. Hard work matters. Um, figuring out the details matters. And your focus you can get on, which you've learned in athletics, you learn in wrestling through life, can, make you, can help make you successful. Um, that, was that true kind of then. confidence, though, and that that having that wherewithal is is powerful at that young age. Right. Yeah, you know, I, and I, I tell I, I tell everyone coming out today that you know you sit there and you you start on a desk and you're watching people, but a lot's happening. I always say, you know, what, what why do you like to hire athletes? Why why do why do you end up with a lot of those people in your life? And a lot of when you're when when I was working, we end up with a lot of them. Is that? It's really easy when you're in when you're in school. You got one focus. You're like you're in college. You're supposed to get good grades, right? And you don't really have a whole lot else going on in your life. And all of a sudden, you hit like you know, 25, 26, 27. You start having a serious relationship. You start having kids. You start having a life. You have to start having more of a social life going on. And you got this work thing going on, which is really what drives everything else. Call it the most important. Call your family. Everything's important. And you got to be able to balance it, everything together. Mm-hmm. And so you can't, like, there's no, like, when you're in school, if you're willing to put in an extra 10 hours, you can get a better grade. Uh, at work, it's not always about putting in more work. It's also about your relationships, how you ask questions, the way you apply it. And, and I, 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 you can work, you know, like I always turn, I would always say to people at the, when I do our, our training session, I'm like, you know, the, everyone who's sitting here got good grades and been successful the whole life, but only half of you are going to make it in this business. Uh, and it's going to be a, it's going to be a mixture of your social interactions, your knowing how to ask the right questions, how hard you're going to be able to work, and balancing life things that happen. And so, 
you have to be able to do all those things. Um, doing sports and doing athletics and doing that your whole life is a is a big help in doing that because you know we've all had times where it's affected us and our life and spilled over, and then you, you need the ability to do that. That's tough. That's a good. That's a good way to put it. Is kind of um, creating silos like that. You mentioned asking the right questions a few times. What comes to mind for you on that? Anything specific? Um, being inquisitive, being willing to, you know, I, you know, I was so I was in New York. So being inquisitive and being not looking at something and just accepting it, but diving deeper if it doesn't make sense. Like you know, I, I got sent to Tokyo. I got sent to Japan when I was twenty five years old. To run a desk which is a little crazy but you know why did my boss have you know first of all i started off with that i was working for my i was trading this new thing called index arbitrage i'm on a desk i'm trading these futures and i saw faxes come over on japan and i'm like i always wanted to live in asia so i turned to my boss and in lunch line i said peter i see these faxes coming up on japan um i'd be interested in going over i'd be in, i'd be interested in working in that he was oh Really, Richard calls me in his office later in the afternoon. He goes, you're now in charge of our Japan. It was someone else was doing it, but they were doing it as a side gig they didn't really care about. He goes, you're now in charge of watching over our Nikkei 25 index arbitrage as well. Um, so in addition to my current job, I now had a job, a side job that I was calling Japan at night uh, and, and starting to work about learning a new market. And, you know, how did I get to that point? Why do you have you know, confidence in me? No. One of the things that had, had happened during the year, I was trading this one book and my P&L just seemed wrong. And it just, my profit loss, I kept, I kept, I'd make money right when I did some things and I felt like there was a leak in money going somewhere. And I turned to the accounting guy and he goes, he goes, Rich, numbers don't lie. Numbers are just the numbers. And I'm like, okay, but something doesn't make sense. So I had no accounting background. I'm a history major from Princeton. Never taken a finance course, never taken an accounting course in my life. I'm like, I'm going to figure out my PL in detail. I'm not going to accept it. And so I started looking at the details of it. I'm like, wait a second, I should be getting interest on the way this is supposed to work. I should be getting interest on 220 million, not 200 million. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I just copy it, like, this is how the numbers should work. He goes, hmm, let me look at that. Two days later, he comes back. He's like, yeah, basically we had a $20 million loss. We'd be carrying for it in our books at 8% interest. People didn't make money like they do on Wall Street back then. It was called, it was literally a leak in our book that had been there for two years. Nobody had ever noticed it. So being willing to look at something saying that what everyone's doing isn't necessarily right, I'm going to understand it. Uh, and I always tell you, don't just take things and accept them and say, this is fine. There's a way, there's ways to improve things. There are ways to figure out what is right. And people love skipping the details. If the numbers are showing up, you got, I'm worried about my girlfriend. I'm worried about my job. I'm busy. It's ways to accept things and not dig deeper. Uh, digging, digging deep helps. Yeah. Making sure you understand it. Like, don't say you understand things you don't. Uh, is always what I always tell people. And once you, once you got the, the deal in Tokyo, you said at first you were working like double duty. When did you finally move out there or did you never move um, out there? No, no. So I was, um, I did that for like, so my boss had told me like, maybe you'd go out there, maybe you spend time there. And that was like three to four months. I was doing, you know, I was mostly working in New York. I was doing some things, watching Japan as well. And he turned to me on a Monday, he goes, Richard, are you still interested in Tokyo? I'm like, yes, yeah, still interested. He goes, okay, we leave Saturday. Uh, you're going to go out there for three months and move to Japan. I'm like, well, can I at least see my parents before I leave? I can't really leave till Sunday if I leave. So he's like, okay, your, your parents can come up. You can see them on, see them on Saturday. I saw my parents on Saturday, hopped on a plane on Sunday uh, and moved to Japan. Wow. And so got to Japan and it was basically figure it out. You know, it was like, go ahead and figure out. I had to go same concepts structurally. But overall, going to learn in a different market, in a different place, and how it traded. Um, you know, I was a, one of two foreigners in an office. I knew one other person in Japan. Um, you sort of go forward. It was great. One of the best, I was one of the best experiences of my life. And I was in Japan for three and a half years. Um, wow. So that's and, kind of where you cut your teeth and really made, made your name? Or would you say you had it before then? 
No, I, that was that was where I, I definitely made my name. I was one of thousands of hundreds, thousands of traders on Wall Street, you know, making okay money. Being back then in New York, I went to Japan, and it was back in you know it's hard for people to imagine now. Nineteen nineties, Japan was taking over the world. Uh, the Nikkei was thirty two thousand when I got there. Finally, went past thirty two thousand for the, again. It was fourteen thousand when I left. I didn't go back to thirty two thousand until about a year ago, or maybe earlier this year. Um, it was a, it was just a really volatile, interesting market to trade in, and I had no guidance on trading. My boss sent me over there. I knew the basics, but I had to figure out the trading, and the trading was different. So it took me a while. Um, once again, I had to figure out I had to figure out the fair value formula, put a tail on a future. My boss didn't even explain to me, but figured out my PL was off. I decided to figure out why that was. And once again, I figured out another thing that I had no business figuring out. But he's like, oh, I called up my boss and said, I think I need to put a tail on my futures position. He's like, why? I explained my reason. He goes, Oh, that's very insightful, Richard. Yes, you do. <laughs> like, you, sent me, you sent me halfway around the world. You knew the answer to my question. You knew I was doing it wrong, but you never told me before. You know, it's a weird, interesting so times. So a good friend of mine uh, is a retired prop trader, and he held nothing overnight, and he worked at a company here in Chicago. Is that the kind of stuff you were doing where it was all like day trading, or were you yeah. holding stuff for a long time? I, I was I was over. I was literally... I always say I was so fortunate to, like I said, I was on the desk when the first exchange traded fund was created. Spiders were created when I was on the trading index arbitrage. There were no ETFs in the world when I started, and I was in the middle of it all. Um, and so I did arbitrage. So I didn't have positions overnight, really, at that point in my life, traded things and flows. That There were sometimes you might keep a position overnight, but it was a rarity. It wasn't a macro business. Uh, and arbitrage was great business because when things were going well, you made money. And when the world went to hell, you made a lot of money. And so you, you're it was much more relaxed, uh, much more relaxed lifestyle in these things where when the world goes to hell, things spread out. And you know, most businesses are, when things aren't going well, you don't do well. My business was fortunate that I got just ended up being in was that when things went well, you know, when things went to hell in the world, you actually made a lot of money. But that, that kind of job is when it's that, everything is so like every detail matters. I mean, you're so dialed in from like eight to five. I mean, I can imagine the kind of focus you must've had. And are you like actually on the keyboard all the day or like reading stuff? Like, how are you going about your day? Oh, oh you know, in those days and for that, for the next, I was nine, the next 10 years, I basically was on the phone trading one thing against another the entire day mm-hmm. from, you know, from, from eight to five, well, really for the market time in Japan, it was nine to three with an hour and a half break for lunch, which was a nice thing. That's um, nice. So you know, in, in New York, it was 9.30 to 4. It was a lot longer hours. Um, so it was a, uh, you yeah, know, you were basically intense all day long. Different world, different time. Now, you know, all these things are computerized and all these things. And, you know, price feeds didn't stay up all the time. Things Sometimes you're trading with imperfect information. You have to have a feeling for markets, too. It's a very different trading structure than it is now. And so after your time in Tokyo, what, what was your next step when you got back to the States? Uh, so I was there, came back, uh, came back to the States. And literally upon coming back to the States, my as I came back, the firm I worked for Kidder Peabody basically went out of business, basically got sold to another company, big trading scandal at Kidder Peabody. And I've seen, I was, you know, that happened right when I came back to New York. I was in New York for a year, sort of going back and forth between the two places. And then the we, bunch of us went over to Royal Bank of Canada in uh, February in February 1995, and that was right around the time there was a big Tokyo earthquake and the big Nick Leeson brought down bearing scandal, and that was a big scandal back then, which doesn't even register compared to all these things that you know compared right. compared, compared to all these things happened. They've gotten bigger and bigger. Joe Jet brought Kidder Peabody down for a couple hundred million dollars. Nick Leeson brought bearings down for. Half a billion for five hundred million dollars. Now you know these numbers don't even register with all these uh, with the most re- with the most recent financials. They, they keep getting bigger, which is the scarier part. Um, Much bigger, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't even imagine the field that you'd be having on the Microsoft stock with all the OpenAI stuff over the weekend. That's crazy. Um, yeah, so that was and that's yeah. I'm not, I was always an index person. I don't know anything about fundamentals of stock, so. I'm an arbitrage person, arbitraging things, and and now I'm a flow of funds and understand. As you get, you know, I was fortunate to be in a position where I was at RBC. I was there for 20 years. Um, 
it was a great place to be. It was a, you know, if you're, if you're in the banking business, you're a slow and steady bank that takes prudent risks, that doesn't get over your skis. Financial business is set up so that if you're in it, you should make money. Uh, and if you keep going, you, you find a way to make better money. You find out ways to hire good people. You protect the firm's capital. Um, the firm always did that. But I progressed from trading a book to running a big business to being around during the during the financial crisis. During I was I was right in the middle of that, like, um, liquidating some repos and the markets going berserk. That was a truly scary time, um, and was there until they uh, until they basically made my job illegal. And the, the Volcker Act basically made my job illegal in 2000. And when they came out the Volcker Rule, no proprietary trading in banks. It was basically, I always say, you never know when to stop, but when they make your job illegal, it's big. It's a big flashing red light to say, maybe you should think about something else. But um, so it was a great 20 years there. And did, uh, you, did, you, did you go into consulting after that? Did you take some time? Um, I took some time, and I've been doing private stuff since then, really. The, you know, the financial crisis was a great, so I was at RBC for 20 years, and I ran a big multi-strat hedge fund. I progressed from being a, Index our prop trader to running a bunch of different hedge strategies at RBC. You know, I probably had about 150 people work for me. There's probably a lot of wrestlers in that, a lot of wrestlers in that crew. Uh, like I always say, I used to always like to hired a lot of guys. Somehow we end up with a lot of guys who were around at 12 at national. Just those guys were really hungry guys who, who tend to grind on Wall Street and do, and do really well. Riley said, Riley said the wrestling circles on, on your team were just crazy. Like it was like everyone and their brother was, was a wrestler. And even outside of your team, a lot of wrestlers on wall street, but yours, especially. Um, we've had a lot. We had a lot. Well, the whole index arbitrage world at one point was like what, three guys from Princeton wrestling were running three of the biggest shops. And another guy was a Princeton hockey player running a big shop. Um, you all gravitate towards the same area. When I worked at, um, RBC, we had some Princeton guys. We had a lot of Penn guys. So my my um guys, a head trader, my partner wrestled at Penn. So we had a lot of got a lot of Penn wrestlers in that era. Who's that? Well. Uh, Ed McBride. He was yeah. McBride. I don't he know. He runs. He run. He was um actually went to high school with the he went, actually went to high school with uh, Clinton Modern, Brett Modern. Um, Ed got hurt. Love the Modern family. So I had a so I know that I know that world very know all those guys very well from then back then. Yeah, Clint Meyer's been on. Um, well, I, I think he's been on as a standalone guest, but um, we did a documentary on, on Brandon Slay, and he was uh, Slay's teammate at Penn. So that, that was a lot of fun to get to know those guys. And yeah, the Modern family is just, just five out of five stars. I mean, they're so great. Um, tell me a little bit about when you go from running your own book to running a huge company, are you still doing like trading on a daily basis? Or are you mainly managing people and managing the global picture at that point? You know, it's a, it's a great question because the first year I was still running my own book. And then I sat there and I was watching other people expand and get bigger. And I'm like running my own book. But the problem when you're running your own book and trying to run a bigger business, and I was supposed to be in charge of hiring new groups and I was doing both. The problem is when things aren't going well, you go back to what you're really good at. I can always sit down and figure out a way to make 50,000 bucks and try to make some money and try to help the P&L. And so I was always going back into my book instead of trying to expand the business. And so actually, I finally sat back to myself after doing this for a year or two and, and not, not growing as much. I said, hmm, this doesn't really make sense. Why don't I go out? Why don't I get someone else to run my book? And why don't I step back from it? And good lesson in life as far as like when you go from a, you're still running something in order managing something, it's really hard to do both because you're always going to fall back and fall back on one. Mm-hmm. And so I, I turned to basically trying to, I, my, my job was to expand the business. And, you know, it was a 20 person business when I started and up being a 150 person business um, across London and across Asia. And just, and you learn a lot. And in order to do that job, you have to learn a lot more about the same time to learn a lot more about the market overall. You know, I started RBC Capital Markets in New York for 40 people. Now it's a thousand people in New York City. In New York City. It was a small firm that became bigger. We were leading our group, but also helping the firm grow. Um, and so you just learn a lot. Um, I also try to tell the young people starting out that, you know, we're not, we're not born necessarily, you know, we're not, today we're not as smart as necessarily we were born with. It's who we surround ourselves and who we're, and what circumstances we put ourselves because you're becoming smart as a lot of your growth. And 
the position I was in being on executive committee of RBC Capital Markets, running a group where I hired all these, Clinton Motter actually worked for me. He ran a high yield credit trading business. So I had all these different businesses reporting to me. When you're talking to these people all the time, you're learning all these different things. You just get smarter. Uh, it's the same thing with going to college. If you go yeah. to college and spend all the time, you know, wrestling is great. Wrestling is really important who we become. I always tell people, if you go to college, you spend all the time around all your wrestling people. You don't meet other people. You're doing yourself a disservice because there's a lot of smart people. You're never going to be around that many young people that are driven to learn things and doing a variety of, of different things in life with, you know, ability to learn. You have to make sure you take advantage of that. I mean, and, and to grow at that rate and to advance your career at such a pace, are you putting in like like iBanker hours where it's 100 hour a week? So like, how are you focused, structuring your day? Um, you know, I, I was always fortunate that I worked in sales and trading. Um, when you're in sales and trading, your day's busy and you're going to work, but markets use, markets close. I mean, there's always things going on after the markets, but, but overall, especially back down markets, more closed. And so you're putting your... You're able to, I'm having a family at that point. You're pretty well, I had a pretty, I called leaving home at 6.30, getting home at 6.30. Those are really good hours, yeah. right? Maybe one or two nights I might go out with guys on the team or go out with something that they work related. Other than that, I'm going home. Um, and so I was fortunate that I was able to, you know, back then I'd work during the day, I'd get in the car at 6.30, I'd be on, be, I'd take a car in, I'd be starting to go through emails and starting to go, get ready for the day and I'd be going through until I got home. But then I basically was shut down for the whole time for, you know, I coached my kids youth wrestling for a long time. Like, as I, as, when I came back from, um, you know, I took a long break from, from the wrestling world. And basically once my, once I moved to, once we moved out of New York city, moved to New Jersey and we had three young kids and the first wrestling season started happening. And I all of a sudden turned to my wife. I'm like, I'm going to start coaching wrestling. She's like, what? And when my wife's Canadian, we met in Tokyo. she she knew I wrestled, but it was always an abstract kind of thing. And she'd never yeah. seen her, she'd never seen a wrestling match in her life. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I, I told you I wrestle, right? And so it, I took a break, about a 10-year break from graduate 87. I actually helped coaching when I was in Chicago for a year, but I took a 10-year break and really away from wrestling. And then 1998, I moved out to Ridgewood. And I'm like, I started coaching youth wrestling program. She's like, I got three young kids at home and you're you're leaving. You better take one of them. So you know, for about the next 15 years, I used to spend two days a week, right? Leave at 6.30, get home at 6.30, go coach for two and a half hours, uh, two or three nights a week, and then coach on the weekends. Um, and got as much more ingrained in the youth wrestling, you know, culture in New Jersey for the next uh, 98 until probably about 2013, or in 2010. Yeah. Wow. What was it like watching your son Joe win that state title in overtime? Um. That was a uh, it was a great moment. It was really a that was crazy that match. Was a, I watched it this morning. It was an exciting match. It was an exciting tournament. Uh, he had a great year. I thought you know it wasn't like, it wasn't really until his first match at states that I thought he had a very good shot at winning. And then he didn't win as easily his first match. I'm like, oh shit, this is gonna be tough. Um, and so going through the whole thing was it was a great, big emotional roller coaster. Yeah, it's cool. And I saw that. I thought maybe you went to Del Barton, but it's cool that you're a part of that community because that's, you know, legendary high school program. Yeah, it's um, it's a legendary high school program. They've done, um, Brian Stoll and Guy Russo have done a great job building it up. You know, it's a, when we, when my son Joe first went there, they basically, you know, even with Mike Gray and Frankie Pirelli and how good they were in that whole world, there wasn't a wrestling room at Del Barton. My son's freshman year. What? They had. There was no wrestling. My son's freshman year. This is, you know, Joe graduated 15. So this is 2011, 2012. They waited for the junior high basketball team to finish practice to roll out their wrestling wrestling mats at practice. That's that's, a, so, that's criminal. At a school of that caliber. Well, it just wasn't a focus. And, you know, to great credit to the Del Bart administration, we worked on getting them set up so there was an off-campus place we could um, – we built a facility with work, working with the Ed. We built a room that Del Barton could go practice in. So starting my son's Joe's sophomore year through a couple of years ago, they, they, were, they basically, Del Barton would leave the school, take a 15-minute, the kids would leave, do a 15-minute drive to the edge. They'd run practice over there. Um, then some kids would go back to the school. But being a private school, people with parents would just pick kids up and kids would figure out how to get home from there. Um, structure, it worked. 
I don't know if you've seen the pictures of the new restroom Del Barton opened up. No, opened when a restroom this spring. Um, it's pretty spectacular. They have a new field house with a restroom room and a weight room that's probably up there with the best in the country. Wow, <clears throat> that's awesome. But yeah. you know, everyone says how great it was. They weren't very good. Mike Gray will tell you he might have won four state titles, but his team went two and fifteen every year. Um, and oh, they've just wow. got there was so they were getting better when Joe was there. My son Travis, who graduated eighteen, who was a very good wrestler as well, um, and, he, and so his team was got better and better to where they are now. Where they, you know, it used to be we we're happy we got the top five in the state, and now they're you know top five in the top five, ten in the country. So different, whole different level. But that's everything's changing the the way the sport. Even from back when Joe wrestled, how how advanced kids are coming into high schools has changed. It's a whole different level, and that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about was. On the parenting front, your kids have had success on the mat. You've had success personally. What are some like like principles or rules you think would be wise for parents who are just getting involved with their kids wrestling to follow that, that helped you? Um, well, I wish someone told me not to yell as much during your kids' <laughs> match. Just get, get your kids worked up. I had to learn that the hard way. Got better at that by the end. Um, you know, to remember that it's in it for them and you don't want to take it. Coach them well, drill them well. Don't run around trying to take your kids to all these different things. Like any guys come in for one-offs and this technique, eh, don't do much. Find a good, consistent coach. Like my kids got a lot better, both Joe and Travis, like who, got, who the ones got really serious about wrestling. Um, once they had, once they started working with a private coach on consistent consistency, mm -hmm. um, your private coach, you know, I was fortunate that Dave Esposito was about as good a coach as a, as kids could possibly have in the world and was the most mellow guy possible. It was always like, no matter what happened, he just kept a nice, nice composure and moved forward. Um, but any coach who knows solid wrestling, who's consistent with them is what really matters. Um, you can do it through your rec program, you do it, but it's a consistency thing. We've been running around the country trying to find the best coach. It's not usually, you know, for one off sections don't, are, are, are not a good thing. Bringing a guy in for three clinics in a year doesn't do your program a whole lot of good. Having mm -hmm. someone show up once a month, every once a month, all season long, that helps, you know, once every once a week, even better. Yeah. And I know when you, even outside of your kids wrestling and you know, you've been involved with, with Princeton heavily and, you know, watching uh, Pat glory when the first since he had titles since 1951 last year, that's a highlight. Tell us about that. Yeah. I, I probably cried after two matches in my life, Joe winning state title and Pat winning NCAA title. Um, uh, you guys are that uh, passionate about the Princeton program. Yeah, remember, but Pat went to high school with my son Travis. My son Travis and Pat graduated from Del Barton in 2018. So, okay. you know, and Pat, so I, I saw, I always say I saw Pat wrestle more high school matches than anybody else because I saw every, every single one of them um, <laughs> in, with, through, through the four years. Right. Um, so, and a good friend of my son Travis and close and close with him to this day. So, um, that was such that a was crazy a, nationals last year. It was, um, that was, that was a big deal. It was a lot of work put into it. You know, it's a, uh, I would say we've changed a lot in USA wrestling. Like, you know, resources matter. I always say, you know, what is one thing you like our wrestlers we have today are great and they're the ones that drive it. And we're, you know, from Jordan, from Jordan Burroughs starting off and being our representative, our, our leader over the last, you know, 12 years, we're all incredibly fortunate and that whole group coming in, but the resources we have set up now, they matter to things like, you know, if I go back to Del Barton, Del Barton was good before, but once you got resources of a better room, a better structure, better things, the coaches still have to do a great job and everything to do a great job, but also structurally people want to come there. They had resources, right? Our, our Princeton wrestling, you know, we were at one level when I was there, but we had two part-time coaches, right? You know, so how, you know, other schools, we didn't realize other schools had full-time coaches who, actually brought you in during the day to actually work on wrestling. Imagine that. What, what a unique idea. Um, and, you know, to now where there's four coaches, right? So you're getting better at things. You're driving, you're bringing athletes to train with them. Um, the athletes still have to put in the work. You still need the special people. You still need the great coaching. But structurally, you know, USA Wrestling is where it is because a lot of work people put, it, put in it over the last 20 years and getting the RTC set up. Yeah, um, getting with those RTCs are a huge thing, putting the living the dream metal fund, putting all that resources in. You know, I think if you go back to when Mike was when Mike when Mike was the team leader in the 2008-2012 cycle, 
those guys were probably age 22 to 28. You know, I'm team leader now. The guys are probably, maybe there's some 23 years old, but very our average is like there's 32, 33 year olds on the team. Mm-hmm. Like Mike was giving all these guys life advice. They're just young guys coming out of college. I'm dealing with professional athletes with families, right? Right. And so great relationship with them. <clears throat> great people couldn't be happier to be associated with them, but a very different, you know, resource. You know, it if you go back 50 years like David Taylor still would probably wouldn't still be wrestling his age, right? Instead, you have the guy who's the best, you know, just gets keeps getting better, right? And so it's a the resources to keep people in the game staying longer. Um, I think they said back in 2010, they went back and studied who was the next who's the most likely person to win a medal at the next Olympics. And the answer was your wrestlers who won at the last Olympics. But we were too often getting our wrestlers to win a gold medal, win a medal. And then it was, they'd make a lot more money doing something else. Mm-hmm. They weren't staying in the game, even though they loved wrestling. You know, so these guys aren't getting rich doing this, but they're able to make a good living. They're able to still do passion what they want and what they love and put the work in. It's just, um, it's been, a, it's been a great system. It's amazing. And USA wrestling gets credit. Yeah. I mean, and, I know as as you mentioned that time frame, 08 through 12, even before that 04 to 08, like man, what a change just since then to now. It's it's night and day. Right. So I mean, you wouldn't have guys just staying in this long. I mean, look at the guys who make our making our world teams and, and looking what it is. And and if you watch, you know, as, as I as I said, uh, I say to the wrestlers, I, I make sure I don't give them any advice on anything related to wrestling. I make sure I give life advice, give overall advice. I host nice things. I support them. I cheer really loud. Well, yeah. I'm not going to make any, any wrestling or any inspirational. Uh, you know, I'm happy to talk to about anything they want advice on, but I'm not going to be giving anyone inspirational talks on wrestling. But if you watch the world championships these days, it is just, you can just really tell the Americans, the Iranians, we are the most prepared and the most in the last two world championships, the Russians, obviously historically, but you can even tell in the last world championships, when they were there, that they were not, they were not the same level as they used to be. Right. Cause with everything going on in their country um, and they're just better prepared. They were mm-hmm. better able to wrestle. If it hits a second, it's always Americans have always done well in the, the end of matches, but even more so now you knew we we're going to start rolling people up in the second period. Um, the structural thing is that as, as they walk out there, they're ready to go. Our guys are just well-prepared and ready. And it's a credit to all their RTC coaches, a credit to themselves, a credit to the USA wrestling for, for building the structure around and supporting the athletes. Yeah. And even the coaches who went, they say like the, the amenities, the, the support staff, it's just, it's top notch. So let me, uh, let me, let me wind down with this one, Rich. So you mentioned you don't give the wrestlers wrestling advice, but you'll talk to them about life advice for our listeners who are you know in their twenties. Maybe they're just getting started in business. doesn't have to be business, but this is almost a little selfish question. Cause I want, I want some of your advice here. So what, what is some, uh, some some life advisors, some general themes you talk about to people who are who are looking to to kind of advance their career or, or do well in life. Um, they've talked about a couple of times. I think one of them is I think the most important thing is like continue to make yourself more valuable. And as you're looking for your jobs and looking at what you're doing, uh, you're not supposed to be looking one job to another. How much more money it pays you? The biggest mistakes people on Wall Street, lots of people make is leaving for a job that pays them 20, 25% more, but doesn't advance their career more, so it makes them worth less. And it doesn't make them worth more. Invest in yourself. You are the most important asset, especially in the world where people change more jobs right now. You are the asset that's going to get paid for what you can bring to the table and what you can do. And so always be willing to spend the time to make yourself better. Find a way to make yourself better, make yourself smarter, make yourself more organized, and make sure when you're getting a job, you don't leave, you know, don't leave a job that doesn't stay in a job where you're going to grow your, your, what you're going to be worth going forward. Cause eventually you should get paid on that. Uh, and then, and you'll get more self-satisfaction for being really good at it. To me, that's my most important thing I tell people starting out in work is invest in yourself and always think of yourself as an asset. Um, second thing is not accept things when you're working the way they are. And I assume that just because someone's been doing it for five, 10 years, I understand it. The amount of times I've seen people who make really good money not know the details. I mean, we go back to the financial crisis, and, and, and you know, I was on a this I was on a golf trip and with a bunch of the guys who ran the securities finance at all these firms. Securities finance is the lifeblood of Wall Street. It's funding for all these trades. And Lehman was going through all these trouble, going through all this trouble. And I'm like, 
I'm like, guys, what, what's going to happen? They're like, oh, they're going to do a good book, bad book. And they'll all be fine. I'm like, what does that mean? And they're like, uh, silence followed. And I'm like, everyone loves saying something. I'm like, good book, bad book. But who's going to take the bad book? Who's going to actually take the financing, the loan that goes with it? Where that, Where is that going to come from? Nobody knew the answer. And that's when I said, guys, we better prepare for the shit's about to hit the fan because I'm with all these guys that run these desks and nobody really knows what's going on. Um, and, and so, that's like 07 or like, oh, wait, you think that's happening? That was that was literally, that was, so that's literally when Lehman goes under in 08. Yeah, so that's 08. I was like, that's September 08, right before Lehman goes under. That's like three weeks beforehand. And I'm talking people who are making seven figures running big desks. And everyone would say the same thing, but nobody really knew the exact answers. And I could tell you that crisis, crisis showed me one thing. Like people had repo. These, these uh, People didn't understand when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt that they had no counterparty because people hadn't done their work. A week later, they were searching for a counterparty. And like the rules were pretty set on what you do. If, someone, if your counterparty goes bankrupt, declares bankruptcy, you default the loan and you, you structure, you liquidate it. A week later, people didn't know. Um, it's going to happen. It happens in every business where people want to accept what it is. Like I said, they got a family at home. They got things going on. They got everything. There's a lot of going on in your life. Always be willing to understand everything that's going on around you and don't accept it uh, for what it is. And, and all, the third I say is know that you can always be wrong. I always you know, start everything off with, you know, I, I know what I know, but I know I could always be wrong. And I always try to accept that and make sure I ask questions and, and invite credit, invite Different, differing opinions for for what for what I think. Yeah, and the thing that comes through for me, outside of some of the main things you've talked about, is you seem like organization is very important to you, and like de- obviously details matter, but even like the organization to have that structure is big for you. Um, yes, yes. People are, you got organized people who like things. When you take these personality tests, you got people who like organization. For me, an organized thing that structurally understands everything is. I need, I need that steady thing of, of how it works. That's my personality. Everyone's personalities are, everyone's personalities are very different. So people, other people have different things for me and structure, how I run things. That's what I need. More creative people probably don't need that same thing. They're going to be doing a different field mm-hmm. for me when I'm watching things that that's how I have to structure and run my life. You got other people with, you know, you, when you do these personality tests at a firm, you find out people view things very differently. And, um, and it's just, we're all, we're all embedded with it. Um, that's interesting. So it's not it's not it's not universal. It's per per person. Um, well, I've gotten a, I've had so much fun talking to you, Rich, and I really appreciate your time. The last thing we always ask every business guest is, you know, any favorite books that you recommend for anyone out there? History could be business, could be anything, but anything you really love. Any favorite books? You know, the I'll tell you what. As I came in, my son was reading Endurance, which is when I just recommended to Kyle Snyder actually when we were down in a. Down in Chile, it's a story about Shackleton's, what he did to rescue his crew and people on the Antarctica voyage. And what a book for people to understand of how, against all odds, what they managed to do back in the, you know, we were talking, you know, 80 years ago, across a frozen, frozen, one of the most difficult sheets. It's a pretty cool book to read. and pretty, It's inspirational in saying there's always a way to get something done and not quitting works and continuously going through things saying okay this didn't work i'm going to try this and let me tell you those people all should have been dead but they kept finding ways to keep going and they figured it out and they, and they rescued them wow. so it's a it pretty pretty it's a pretty amazing book to read endurance is the Ernest shackleton story got it yeah read that awesome. you, you 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 enjoy it anything else that comes to mind or is that that that's the main one um God, now we were favorite. I read a lot, so I just put a lot of pressure on me. Um, no, just a couple too. We love books on the show. Um, Midnight's Children. You read that? Mm-mm. Solomon Rushdie. That's actually just run. That won the Booker Prize for the best book of fifty years. It's a book about literally when and it, and I can't when India and Pakistan split. You know, they get separated in nineteen forty-seven on one day. It's a book that says like the children that were born within that minute gets. Get certain super, super called superpowers, abilities, but it's structurally a great story. Plus, it's a great historical context because I never re- I, I read it probably when I was thirty five. 
I never realized really what happened when they created Indian Pakistan in, in 1947. Um, it's a phenomenal book. What's it called? Midnight what? Midnight's Children. Got it. Awesome. And let me see what I have one good finance book up. Oh, my finance book for, for traders. Fortune's Formula. Fortune bring formula. This up. For, fortunes. Fortune's Formula. Okay. It is a book about gambling and a book about betting and the sort of the it's it is the and sort of it, it starts into the um it starts into a lot of how the options theory on trading over developed on Wall Street and how it developed from betting on horses. And anybody who does any you don't need to work on Wall Street for it. Anybody does any betting, does anything like that, it's a really good way to process. We did just without even realizing by the time I read it, a lot of my structure, how we ran our business at RBC was based on this because you always think that the great bet is your bet at all. No, you always got to figure out what, you know, staying in the game is what matters, making sure even though you think you have the best bet ever, it's just a really good mathematical way to look at it and to see how this all developed from literally horse racing under the Wall Street options market and how people think about trading today. I think that's wow. the best book for people. Someone starting out in trading, I always tell them this is, this, is the, this is the best book to read. Got it. Well, we'll link to all that in the show notes. Rich DeVoso, what an honor, my friend. It's been a lot of fun. Have a great day, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for talking to me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wrestling Changed My Life. If you enjoy this show, we want to hear from you. So leave us a review on Apple Podcast and subscribe to the show. If you want to watch video clips from this interview, go to our YouTube page, Wrestling Changed My Life. And to support the podcast, please buy our merch at store.wrestlingchangedmylife.com. We'll see you next time on Wrestling Changed My Life. Peace!